Ah, amen. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Good to have those of you who are joining us from your homes this morning by a live stream. It's great to be with you. And I just want to begin by thanking those of you that knew about me doing a memorial service last night and were praying for me. I felt those prayers. And I want to thank you for that. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're almost to the end, looking at the story of Jesus. And we are down now to the final hours of Jesus' life on earth. And these are very significant times, obviously, that are happening here. And we want to try to glean everything and grab everything that we can out of these passages of Scripture this morning. I was debating even up until just a minute ago of whether to, to do the Bible or not do the Bible. And I decided, now nah, God wants me to lay the Bible aside and just share, right? So I'm not going to be able necessarily to, to take you to every verse or whatever, but I figure this way. We're going to be looking at the first 27 verses. We're going to be in that passage of Luke 22. You can certainly read it, immerse yourself in it. I just want to share with you the things that God has laid on my heart from this passage of Scripture this morning. And I, I want to begin by giving us a little context here. You, you will note at the beginning of the passage that this is during the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover in Jerusalem. So that tells us that Jerusalem would have been swelling with a number of people. Uh, they tell us that hundreds of thousands of people would have descended on Jerusalem during these festival times. So in a sense, Jerusalem was packed. Uh, you could not find a hotel room anywhere near Jerusalem at this time. Everybody was trying to get in there to observe the feasts uh, of unleavened bread and Passover. So it was very crowded during this time. Lots of people, not just those that lived there, but obviously coming from all over Israel to be there during this time. The second thing I want us to note, though, about the context here, and I think hopefully we can relate to this, is that here's Jesus, and we're going to see him shine in this passage of Scripture. We're going to see Again, such a contrast between him and what's going on around him. There's a lot of people behaving badly in this passage of Scripture. There's a lot of people behaving badly in and around Jesus, and yet he is true to himself, and he's just there being who he is, and he's making a difference. And the reason I think that's important before we get to the specifics of the people who are behaving badly is that sometimes whether it's a day, a week, a month, or even a year here on earth, you may get discouraged because you look around at maybe family members even and, and friends and coworkers and maybe for you younger people, people you go to school with and just the world in general, and you go, man, I feel like everybody around me is behaving badly. 
don't lower yourself to that level. You rise above the bad behavior around you and you stay true to yourself and stay stay true to your God and you be who God wants you to be. And you shine. Because many times the greatest opportunities we have to witness and to testify about the reality of God in our life is when we're in the midst of other people not doing very well and behaving very badly. Let's look at some examples from this passage. In the first couple of verses, we learn from Luke that the religious leaders of Israel are seeking a way to execute Jesus, to get rid of him. So here's the religious leaders of Israel who are supposed to be bringing people to God. And here's God in the flesh, standing before them for the last three years, offering salvation to his own people. And the religious leaders of Israel are literally leading the people away from God rather than to God. And they're literally plotting to kill God, not behaving very well, right? And then we are informed in the first few verses that Satan, this behind-the-scenes character who's always working behind the scenes, has now taken possession of Judas, one of the 12 disciples. And that Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, is literally going to betray him and hand him over to the authorities to be killed. Judas is going to deal treacherously with Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend a whole message just on Judas, which we're not going to do this morning, but I do want to say this. Judas could be one of the most tragic figures in all of human history. Here's a man who walked with Jesus Christ for at least three years of his life, almost every day. Here is a man who was discipled by Jesus Christ, personally. Here's a man who saw all the miracles that Jesus did, who was in the company of good people, and yet... He never opened up his heart to Jesus. And because of that now, he was open to Satan's influence in his life. And Satan took advantage of it and seized that opportunity and came in and took possession of Judas. I think sometimes we, even as Christians, can can begin to think erroneously that if, 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 we, if we just create a perfect environment, if we just make everything right, then people will, will behave right and live right and make the right choices and all of that. And we should know that from the very beginning of our Bible that God gave us, that that's not true. That God put Adam and Eve in a perfect environment and yet they sinned against God. And here's Judas who could have had no greater advantages in his life. I mean, he was personally discipled by Jesus, and yet he chose to betray Jesus. Because it is a great reminder to us 
that it's not about all the externals that sometimes we focus on. It's about the heart. And Judas's heart never opened up to Jesus Christ. Even though he was with him, even though he was in proximity, even though he was physically present with Jesus all the time, his heart never opened up to Jesus. That's why I never want to take for granted just because you're here in church, just because you come to church regularly, just because you may read your Bible, just because you may pray that somehow we just take for granted, oh, they, they must have a relationship with God. No, I don't know your heart. Because if anybody would have thought, oh, yeah, all, all 12 of those guys, they're, they're going to heaven. No. Because it's a heart thing. <laughs> so here's the religious leaders of Israel behaving badly around Jesus. Here's Judas, one of his own disciples, behaving badly. And if that's not enough, during this very solemn occasion, very significant occasion, where Jesus is literally going to add even greater significance to the Passover by telling his disciples and teaching his disciples to see him and his sacrifice for them in the Passover, what are they doing in verse 24? They're arguing about which one of them's the greatest. Wow. Here's Jesus telling them, oh, I'm going to give up my life for you, and they're arguing about which one's the greatest. Again, first of all, thank the Lord for his patience with us. But second of all, you see, here were men that, again, had spent almost every day of their life with Jesus for the last three years, and yet, boy, they still had a lot of growing to do. And so this is the context. And in the midst of all these people behaving badly, the religious leaders trying to execute Jesus, Judas betraying Jesus, the disciples arguing about which one of them is the greatest, here's Jesus. And I want us to see in this passage of Scripture this morning some things that we can learn or be reminded about Jesus in four titles or four descriptions of Jesus in this passage. And the first is that I want us to see Jesus as our Passover lamb. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that if you've accepted Christ, he is our Passover lamb. John the Baptist said to his followers when he saw Jesus one day, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the significance here is that as you move through this passage, we're no longer in the season of unleavened bread and Passover. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread has begun. And it says to us in this passage that on that first day, the Passover lambs are sacrificed. What, what a time. And, and to think about the meaning behind it when we know who Jesus is. That here he is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread 
And all these lambs are being sacrificed and slaughtered. And he knows that tomorrow he will be the lamb of God that is slaughtered and hung on a cross. And yet, in the midst of all this, what does Jesus want to do with his followers? He wants to have a meal with them, and he wants to celebrate this Passover with them. He says later on in the passage, after he sends Peter and John to get this room that's going to be prepared for them, and I'm going to come back to that passage, part of the passage later, but it says that Jesus says to his followers, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer in your place. <laughs> Think about it. What is Jesus' passion here? He has a passion to be with his people in sweet communion and fellowship. He desires to sit down at his table with his people and be with them because he loves us that much. That instead of it being about him, you know, he could have, as maybe a human being would, he could have thought to himself, you know, tomorrow I got to die on a cross. So tonight's all about me. What are you guys going to do for me tonight? How, how are you going to, you know, serve me? And, and how are you going to look after me? And uh, since this is my last sort of night before I suffer, you know, it's about me. No, just the opposite. It was never about him, even on the night before he died. It was about his followers. It was about his disciples. It was about showing them how much he loved them and having them celebrate Passover with him so that he could give them the true meaning of Passover that would last throughout their life. So what does he do? He gathers them around the table and he just hangs out with his followers. And at some point in the night, he takes bread and he says, guys, this bread now is not just symbolic of the deliverance from Egypt that Moses celebrated the very first Passover with, which, by the way, was 1,500 years before that night. So some 1,500 years after Moses first celebrated Passover, here's Jesus sitting down with his followers and celebrating Passover and now saying, this bread isn't just about deliverance from Egypt. This bread is about deliverance of all human beings from sin if they trust me and believe in my sacrifice. Because this is symbolic of my body which is going to be broken for you. And, and I want you to note those two words in this passage where Jesus says, for you. He moves on to say, this is a new covenant poured out for you, my blood, and this I'm doing for you. It's all about what Jesus is doing for us as the Passover lamb. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The prophet Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
by his stripes, we are healed. He is laying down his life for us. He is taking upon the sin of the world for us. And we've got to make this really personable, personal and really applicable to us individually. We've got to remember that when we come and we read passages like Jesus here and, and being our Passover lamb, that he literally took our sins 2,000 years ago. All the sin that we will ever commit in our lifetime. And he took it upon himself. And he was our substitute. He died that death in our place. Just as those lambs would do in Passover. And all of our sin was placed on him. And he took the penalty for our sin that we deserved. But out of his great love and mercy and grace, he took our place. And not only does he do that so that our sin can be all forgiven, so that we can have a relationship with God that was severed through sin, but then he gives us his righteousness that we don't deserve as well. As our Passover lamb. And again, let's remember, he was slaughtered. The Bible tells us that he was so disfigured that he didn't even look human. Not only was Jesus beaten, even before he went to the cross, he was scourged. Literally, they would take a Roman flagrum that had pieces of glass and bone attached to the end of these whips, and they would literally tear into a person's back and literally rip chunks of a person's back out to where even their, their back and their organs and their bones and everything was exposed. Can you imagine even how that felt on wood as he was hanging there on that cross? And then it tells us that they pulled out some of his beard and they put a crown of thorns upon his head and pressed those thorns into his head. You and I all know how head wounds bleed more than probably anywhere else. You can imagine the amount of blood that was flowing down the body of Jesus. And then to have those nails driven through his hands and his feet so that he could be attached to that cross, our Passover lamb. He did that for you and for me so that we could have a relationship with him. If you ever doubt that God loves you, think of the cross, my friend. Think of the cross. Think of Jesus as our Passover lamb. And so in the midst of the religious leaders of Israel wanting to get rid of him. In the midst of Judas, one of his own, betraying him so treacherously. And in the midst of his own disciples arguing about which one's the greatest, Jesus is saying, I love you and I'm going to lay down my life for you. But that's not the only designation that we see for Jesus here in this passage. As I said earlier on in the passage, he wants to celebrate this meal with his disciples. 
So you'll notice he sends Peter and John out to make preparations, which, by the way, that's always the way God does it, never alone, always with a partner. And Peter and John say, well, Lord, where do you want us to prepare the meal? And notice what Jesus says to them. He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the city, and you're going to see a man carrying a water jar. Now, first of all, that's, remember how crowded it is? And yet, here's the thing. Men usually did not carry water jars or water pots. That was what the women did. Men carried wineskins. Women carried water jars, for the most part, generally speaking. So the fact that they're looking for a man carrying a water, he would have probably stood out a little bit. And then Jesus says, and when you find him, and you'll, you'll get there at just the right time, he's passing, you follow him into the house that he's going to. And when you get there, here's what I want you to say to the owner of that house. The teacher is asking you where, what room we have to prepare the Passover. I want you to look at those words, the teacher, because Jesus uses those words of himself. He's not just our Passover lamb. He is our teacher. It is a designation or title for Jesus which reminds us that he shows us the way of God, that he shows us the way of salvation, that his words are literally life and breath to us. Is he not only your Passover lamb, is he your teacher? Are you allowing Jesus to teach you and speak into your life each and every day? Because Jesus even uses the term disciples in that passage. Where is the room that I can celebrate Passover with my disciples? And let's not forget what the word disciple means. It literally means learner. One who has a humble, teachable spirit who is willing to come to the Lord and say, Lord, teach me, grow me, give, give me revelation. Let me see the things that you want me to see. Let me hear the things that you want me to hear. He is to be not only our Passover lamb, he is to be our teacher. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there are two characteristics of a good teacher, and Jesus is the ultimate one. A good teacher will give words that guide us, that guide us, that give us direction, that lead us, that tell us this is the way to go. That's what a good teacher will do. And Solomon also says in Ecclesiastes that a good teacher will not only guide us, a good teacher will ground us, will, will give us words that settle us, that, that stabilize us, that give us security and root us, if you will, as Solomon would say it, like firmly fixed nails that nail something to a, a wall and fix it there. It's firm. Those are the two great characteristics of Jesus, our teacher. 
that if we are listening to him, he will always be guiding us and grounding us with the things that he says into our lives. But we have to make sure that we're not only looking to him as our Passover lamb, but that we're looking to him as our teacher, as the one who can show us the way. Instead of being like, God, I got this. I got this today, God. I got this this week. I got it this month. I'm taking control of my own life, and I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not looking at Jesus as the teacher. Looking at Jesus as the teacher is, Lord, what do you have for me today? What do you want to show me today? And what path do you want me to be on today? You lead me, God, because you're my teacher. And I want to grow and I want to learn from you. The great thing about, one of the great things about our salvation and our relationship with God is no matter how long we live life on earth, we never have to stop growing. We never have to stop learning. We can be learning and growing all the way up to the day that we see Jesus when he takes us home. Is he your Passover lamb? Is he your teacher? Then you come to verse 21. Jesus makes this startling statement. He says, the one who is going to betray me, their hands are literally on the table with me tonight. Now, before we get to this next designation, I want you to go down to verse 23. Note something very important the disciples start looking around at each other going, who in the world could it be? They had no clue that it was Judas. It wasn't like Judas was like the obvious like one, right? Like he's been this evil snidely whiplash for the last three years. You know, he's this guy that nobody likes and, and he's just the obvious. No, they have no clue who's going to betray Jesus. I think, again, sometimes as Christians, we get maybe some impressions that truly the Bible doesn't give us. The Bible ne never tells us that Judas was this bad guy from the start. In fact, I personally believe that Judas, when he came to be one of the disciples, that initially, I think he wanted to use his skills and abilities and talents to truly help Jesus and his followers but he never gave his heart to the Lord. And he opened himself up to the influence of Satan. It wasn't like it was obvious, though, to anybody else. And I, I want to pause for just a minute, and I, and I hope this will be encouraging to you because it's encouraging to me. I know there's been times in my life, both just in my personal life and in my life of ministry, where... I've kicked myself for not seeing something in someone that I wish I would have seen ahead of time. I remember a couple years ago, I, I shared with you, I think at the end of a service, how I was really torn up because in our community out there, I had a friend that I would talk to every day. And I consider myself a, a person that usually can sense things in other people because of my years in ministry and because of the way God wired me and all of that. 
I sort of pride myself, you know, in, in being able to read people and, and see things in people. And I, I would interact with this gentleman, and this is just one example of my life, right? I would interact with this gentleman almost every day. And I came to find out a couple years ago that he, he took his life. And I remember going, Lord, how, how comes I didn't see that he was that depressed, that he was that hopeless? And I, I beat myself up over not seeing that in him. And I've done that even in ministry where I, I promoted somebody in ministry or I, I, I gave them an opportunity and boy, did I regret it after the fact. I was like, boy, I wish I would have seen something. And I, and I think the reason I'm sharing that is because sometimes we aren't going to be able to see certain things in people because people's lives are like an iceberg. There's only like a little bit above the surface and there's a lot going on underneath the surface that they never show us or reveal to us or that's going on. And we're human and we can't see everything because we can't see into people's hearts. And the disciples cur certainly couldn't see that it was Judas who was the obvious betrayer here. And they spent almost every day with this man for the last three years. So... I hope that that's an encouragement. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 22. He uses the phrase, the son of man. The son of man is a phrase that not just speaks about his 100% humanity. Obviously, he's the son of God, 100% deity. But it is actually a very elevated title. It's taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is escorted before the Ancient of Days and given ruling authority and sovereignty that will never end and his kingdom will never be destroyed. In other words, the phrase, the Son of Man, is a very exalted title. It speaks of Jesus not only as our Passover lamb, not only as our teacher, but as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Do we see him that way? Do we trust him that way? And why does Jesus use it in the midst of all this? Because he says, the Son of Man is going to go as it's been determined. But then he says, but woe to the man who's going to betray him. It's not like God made Judas betray him. So here in this verse, you have this beautiful balance of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Is God going to hold Judas responsible for his actions? You better believe it, because they were Judas's choices. Now, God had determined that Jesus, his son, was going to be betrayed, but he didn't make Judas do it. And here you have sovereignty of God, responsibility of man coexisting. That's the way the Bible teaches it, and that's what we have to be able to just say, okay, I can't necessarily always reconcile it, but I know that that's the way of God. There is God who's sovereign, and yet man is responsible. But the reason I want to point this out in this passage is because also why Jesus is using the phrase son of man here in the midst of being our Passover lamb is because he's saying, no one's taking my life from me. It's not like everything that's happening around me is out of my control. I'm giving my life. 
I am laying it down. In fact, you see that even as he celebrates Passover. He says, this is my body which is given for you. No one's taking Jesus' life from him if he doesn't want it to be given. He is laying it down and giving it because he's in control. And I hope that you know that Jesus, your Passover lamb and your teacher, is in control of this universe and this world and your life. Therefore, you don't have to be worried and filled with anxiety and fretting and, and filled with all these cares because Jesus has got you and he's got this universe that he's created. And you can trust him as the son of man. One other. Let's go to verse 24. The disciples begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. And that's the last title I want us to see in relationship to Jesus. You know who's the greatest? It's not one of the disciples. It's Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. And no disrespect to a man named Muhammad Ali, but he's not the greatest either. Jesus Christ is the greatest person in the universe. He's the one who's the greatest. Do you see him in that way? Is he the greatest person in your life? Is he beyond the Passover lamb, the teacher, the son of man? Is he the greatest for you? And Jesus uses this time where his disciples are behaving badly to teach them a very important principle. He says, in this world, the greatest people are the ones who are being served by others. The servants are never looked at as the greater ones. The ones who are at the table being served by others are looked at as the more important, significant, and greater ones. He says, but I'm telling you, that the leaders in my kingdom are the ones who serve. And then he says in verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. True greatness is to be like Jesus. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we live the life of a servant. That's following Jesus. And by the way, being a servant in God's eyes or God's economy is not doing acts of service. You know, again, I've grown up in church, been around church people, and been in church all my life, and sometimes we reduce serving God to the things that we do. You know, I'm serving God because I did this, or I showed up at this service opportunity or whatever. And I'm not saying that that's not serving God, but it's so much more than that. God wants us to see that serving him and service in his eyes is a mindset. It's a, it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. I wake up every day as Jesus did, showing his servant's heart, wrapping that towel around my waist and washing his disciples' feet. Jesus is saying to us, you want to be a servant? Don't reduce your life of service to just the acts of service that you do. It's a heart that I want to develop in you so that when you wake up every day, you're just making yourself available and saying, Lord, 
I'm here to serve. Whatever that means, I'm here to serve you and however you want to lead me. I'm here to serve others. I am willing to lay down my life to serve others because Jesus has already taught his followers greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. It's not about me, Lord. It's about others first. So God, I am here just as a humble servant. And Jesus says, those are the great ones in my kingdom. Not the ones who are being served, but the ones who are looking for opportunities to serve. And Jesus, again, let's remember, is revealing all of this and doing all of this in the midst of this context of everyone around him behaving badly. The religious leaders want to kill him. Judas is going to betray him. His own disciples that he's laying down his life for is arguing about which one's the greatest when the greatest is right at the table with them. And he's saying, I want to be your Passover lamb. I want to be your teacher. I want to be your son of man. I want to be the greatest in your life. Will you follow me? So as we partake of the Lord's table today, first of all, I hope that Jesus is your Passover lamb. That as you take these elements, there was a time in your life where you said, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. But I also want you to be my teacher. I also want to look to you as the son of man who is the sovereign ruler of this universe and whom I know I can rest in and trust in. And God, there's no one greater in my life than you. You are the greatest person I will ever know, Lord. And I want to give everything I can to follow in your footsteps. I'm going to ask Nicole and the worship team to come. And while they're coming and getting set here on the platform, I'm going to ask Teresa and her team to get set to pass out the elements of the bread and the cup. I would ask you just to remain seated until you get the elements of the bread and the cup. But once you receive those elements, if you would stand and just join us as we're worshiping the Lord, but that none would partake of the elements until everyone is served. And then after the song, I will come up and I will lead us in partaking of these elements together. And just for sort of some housekeeping you know, here today, because we have a lot of new people that keep coming to the Oasis. Let me assure you that the bread that we use is gluten-free, dairy-free. We don't even understand how it sticks together. Okay? So if you have any, you know, fear about partaking of this because it's going to bother you, I promise you it will not bother you. We want you to partake of the bread. And here at the Oasis, we use non-alcoholic wine, not grape juice. And I've shared for many years the reason why is because when I reflected on the fact that this symbolizes the blood of my Savior that was shed for me, I don't want it to taste sweet in my mouth. Nothing against churches that use grape juice. I'm not saying, I'm just saying for us at the Oasis, I want the wine to have a little bit of a bitterness to it when we partake of it. Because to me, it should not be something that tastes sweet in my mouth. So I'm going to ask uh, the team to begin to 
pass the elements out as the worship team leads us in this song. And again, as you get the elements, would you please stand and join us as we worship our Lord?